The Big Bow Mystery by Israel Zangwill Read by Adrian Pretzelis, Santa Rosa, California, August 2007 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org The Big Bow Mystery by Israel Zangwill Chapter 12 Grodman was ushered into the conscientious minister's study. The doughy chief of the agitation was, perhaps, the one man who could not be denied. As he entered, the Home Secretary's face seemed lit up with relief. At a sight from his master, the amanuensis who had brought in the last telegram took it back with him into the outer room where he worked. Needless to say, not a tithe of the minister's correspondence ever came under his own eyes. "'You have a good reason for troubling me, I suppose, Mr. Grodman?' said the Home Secretary, almost cheerfully. "'Of course, it is about Mortlake.' "'It is, and I have the best of all reasons.' "'Take a seat. Proceed.' "'Pray do not consider me impertinent. But have you ever given any attention to the science of evidence?' "'How do you mean?' asked the Home Secretary, rather puzzled adding with a melancholy smile, I have had too lately. Of course, I have never been a criminal lawyer like some of my predecessors, but I should hardly speak of it as a science. I look upon it as a question of common sense. Pardon me, sir. It is the most subtle and difficult of all the sciences. It is indeed rather the science of the sciences. What is the whole of inductive logic? as laid down, say, by Bacon and Mill, but an attempt to appraise the value of evidence. The said evidence being the trails left by the Creator, so to speak. The Creator has, I say in all reverence, drawn up a myriad red herrings across the track. But the true scientist refuses to be baffled by superficial appearances in detecting the secrets of nature. The vulgar herd catches at the gross apparent fact, but the man of insight knows that what lies on the surface does lie. Very interesting, Mr. Grodman, but really, bear with me, sir. The science of evidence being thus so extremely subtle, and demanding the most acute and trained observation of fact, the most comprehensive understanding of human psychology, is naturally given over to professors who have not the remotest idea that things are not what they seem, and that everything is other than it appears. To professors, most of whom, by their year-long devotion to the shop-counter or the desk, have acquired an intimate acquaintance with all the infinite shades and complexities of things in human nature. When twelve of these professors are put in a box— it is called a jury. When one of these professors is put in a box by himself, he is called a witness. The retailing of evidence, the observation of the facts, is given over to people who go through their lives without eyes. The appreciation of evidence, the judging of these facts, is surrendered to people who may possibly be adepts in weighing out pounds of sugar apart from their sheer inability to fulfil either function, to observe or to judge. 
their observation and their judgment alike are vitiated by all sorts of irrelevant prejudices. You are attacking trial by jury. Not necessarily. I am prepared to accept that scientifically, on the ground that there are, as a rule, only two alternatives, the balance of probabilities slightly in favour of the true decision being come to. Then, in cases where experts like myself have got up the evidence, the jury can be made to see through trained eyes. The Home Secretary tapped impatiently with his foot. "'I can't listen to abstract theorising," he said. "'Have you any fresh, concrete evidence?' "'Sir, everything depends on our getting down to the root of the matter. "'What percentage of average evidence should you think is thorough, plain, simple, unvarnished fact, "'the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth?' Fifty, said the minister, humouring him a little. "'Not five. I say nothing of lapses of memory, of inborn defects of observational power, though the suspiciously precise recollection of dates and events possessed by ordinary witnesses in important trials taking place years after the occurrences involved is one of the most amazing things in the curiosity of modern jurisprudence.' I defy you, sir, to tell me what you had for dinner last Monday, or what exactly you were saying and doing at five o'clock last Tuesday afternoon. Nobody whose lives does not run in mechanical grooves can do anything of the sort, unless, of course, the facts have been very impressive. But this, by the way. The great obstacle to voracious observation is the element of prepossession in all vision. Has it ever struck you, sir, that we never see any one more than once, if that, the first time we meet a man, we may possibly see him as he is? The second time our vision is coloured and modified by the memory of the first. Do our friends appear to us as they appear to strangers?' Do our rooms, our furniture, our pipes strike our eyes as they would strike the eye of an outsider, looking on them for the first time? Can a mother see her babe's ugliness, or a lover, his mistress's shortcomings, though they stare everybody else in the face? Can we see ourselves as others see us? No. Habit, prepossession changes all. The mind is a large factor in every so-called external fact. The eye sees sometimes what it wishes to see, more often what it expects to see. You follow me, sir? The Home Secretary nodded his head less impatiently. He was beginning to be interested. The hubbub from without broke faintly about their ears. To give you a definite example— Mr. Wimp said, when I burst open the door of Mr. Constant's room on the morning of December 4th, and saw that the staple of the bolt had been wrested by the pin from the lintel, I jumped at once to the conclusion that I had broken the bolt. Now, I admit that this was so. Only in things like this you do not seem to conclude. You jump so fast 
that you can see or seem to. On the other hand, when you see a standing ring of fire produced by whirling a burning stick, you do not believe in its continuous existence. It is the same when witnessing a legerdemain performance. Seeing is not always believing, despite the proverb, but believing is often seeing. It is not to the point that in that little matter of the door Wimp was as hopelessly and incurably wrong as he has been in everything all along. The door was securely bolted. Still, I confess that I should have seen that I had broken the bolt in forcing the door, even if it had been broken beforehand. Never once since December 4th did this possibility occur to me, till Wimp with perverted ingenuity suggested it. If this is the case with a trained observer, one moreover fully conscious of this ineradicable tendency of the human mind, how must it be with an untrained observer? Come to the point, come to the point, said the Home Secretary, putting out his hand as if it itched to touch the bell on the writing table. Such as, went on Grodman imperturbably, such as Mrs. Drabdump. That worthy person is unable, by repeated violent knocking, to arouse her lodger, who yet desires to be aroused. She becomes alarmed. She rushes across to get my assistance. I burst open the door. What do you think the good lady expected to see? Mr. Constant murdered, I suppose, murmured the Home Secretary, wonderingly. Exactly. And so she saw it. And what should you think was the condition of Arthur Constant when the door yielded to my violent exertions and flew open? Why, was he not dead? gasped the Home Secretary, his heart fluttering violently. Dead? A healthy young fellow like that. When the door flew open, Arthur Constant was sleeping the sleep of the just. It was a deep, a very deep sleep, of course, else the blows at his door would long since have awakened him. But all the while Mrs. Drabdump's fancy was picturing her lodger, cold and stark. The poor young fellow was lying in bed in a nice warm sleep. "'You mean to say you found Arthur Constant alive?' "'As you were last night.' The minister was silent, striving confusedly to take in the situation. Outside the crowd was cheering again. It was probably to pass the time. "'Then when was he murdered?' "'Immediately afterwards.' "'By whom?' "'Well, that is, if you will pardon me, not a very intelligent question. Science and common sense are in accord for once. Try the method of exhaustion. It must have been either by Mrs. Drabdump or myself.' "'You mean to say that Mrs. Drabdump—' "'Poor dear Mrs. Drabdump, you don't deserve this of your home secretary. The idea of that good lady—' "'It was you?' "'Calm yourself, my dear home secretary. There is nothing to be alarmed at. It was a solitary experiment, and I intend it to remain so.' The noise without grew louder. Three cheers for Grobman! Hip, hip, hooray! 
fell faintly on their ears. But the minister, pallid and deeply moved, touched the bell. The Home Secretary's Home Secretary appeared. He looked at the great man's agitated face with suppressed surprise. "'Thank you for calling in your amanuensis,' said Grodman. "'I intended to ask you to lend me his services. I suppose he can write shorthand?' The minister nodded, speechless. "'That is well. I intend this statement to form the basis of an appendix to the twenty-fifth edition, sort of silver wedding, of my book Criminals I Have Caught. Mr. Denzil Canticott, who, by the will I have made to-day, is appointed my literary executor, will have the task of working it up with literary and dramatic touches after the model of the other chapters of my book. I have every confidence that he will be able to do me as much justice from a literary point of view as you, sir, no doubt will from a legal. I feel certain he will succeed in catching the style of the other chapters to perfection. Templeton, whispered the Home Secretary, this man may be a lunatic. The attempt to solve the Big Bow mystery may have addled his brain. Still, he added aloud, it will be as well to take down his statement in shorthand. Thank you, sir, said Grodman heartily. Ready, Mr. Templeton? Here goes. My career till I left the Scotland Yard Detective Department is known to all the world. Is that too fast for you, Mr. Templeton? A little? Well, I'll go slower. But pull me up if I forget to keep the brake on. When I retired, I discovered that I was a bachelor. But it was too late to marry. Time hung heavy on my hands. The preparation of my book, Criminals I Have Caught, kept me occupied for some months. When it was published, I had nothing more to do but think. I had plenty of money, and that was safely invested. There was no call for speculation. The future was meaningless to me. I regretted I had not elected to die in harness. As idle old men must, I lived in the past. I went over and over again my ancient exploits. I re-read my book. And as I thought and thought, away from the excitement of the actual hunt, and seeing the facts in a truer perspective, so it grew daily clearer to me that criminals are more fools than rogues. Every crime I had traced, however cleverly perpetrated, was, from the point of view of penetrability, a weak failure. Traces and trails were left on all sides, ragged edges, rough-hewn corners. In short, the job was botched, artistic completeness unattained. To the vulgar, my feats might seem marvellous. The average man is mystified to grasp how you detect the letter E in a simple cryptogram. To myself, they were as commonplace as the crimes they unveiled. To me now, with my lifelong study of the science of evidence, it seemed possible to commit not merely one, but a thousand crimes that should be absolutely undiscoverable, and yet criminals would go on sinning and giving themselves away in the same old grooves, no originality, no dash, no individual insight, 
no fresh conception. One would imagine there were an academy of crime with forty thousand armchairs, and gradually, as I pondered and brooded over the thought, there came upon me the desire to commit a crime that should baffle detection. I could invent hundreds of such crimes and please myself by imagining them done, but would they really work out in practice? Evidently the sole performer of my experiment must be myself. The subject, whom or what, accident should determine. I itch to commence with murder, to tackle the stiffest problems first, and I burnt to startle and baffle the world, especially the world of which I had ceased to be. Outwardly I was calm, and spoke to the people about me as usual. Inwardly I was on fire, with a consuming scientific passion. I sported with my pet theories, and fitted them mentally on every one I met, every friend or acquaintance I sat and gossiped with. I was plotting out a murder without leaving a clue. There is not one of my friends or acquaintances I have not done away with in thought. There is no public man, have no fear, my dear Home Secretary, I have not planned to assassinate secretly, mysteriously, unintelligibly, undiscoverably. Ah, how I could give the stock criminals points with their second-hand motives, their conventional conceptions, their commonplace details, their lack of artistic feeling and restraint. The crowd had again started cheering. Impatient as the watchers were, they felt that no news were good news. The longer the interview accorded by the Home Secretary to the Chairman of Defence Committee, the greater the hope his obduracy was melting. The idol of the people would be saved, and Grodman and Tom Mortlake were mingled in the exultant plaudits. The late Arthur Constant, continued the great criminologist, came to live nearly opposite me. I cultivated his acquaintance. He was a lovable young fellow, an excellent subject for experiment. I do not know when I have ever taken to a man more. From the moment I first set eyes on him, there was a peculiar sympathy between us. We were drawn to each other. I felt instinctively he would be the man. I loved to hear him speak enthusiastically of the brotherhood of man. I, who knew the brotherhood of man, was to the ape, the serpent, and the tiger. And he seemed to find pleasure in stealing a moment's chat with me from his engrossing self-appointed duties. It is a pity humanity should have been robbed of so valuable a life, but it had to be. At a quarter to ten on the night of December 3rd, he came to me. Naturally, I said nothing about this visit at the inquest or the trial. His object was to consult me mysteriously about some girl. He said he had privately lent her money, which she was to repay at her convenience. What the money was for, he did not know, except that it was somehow connected with an act of abnegation in which he had vaguely encouraged her. The girl had since disappeared 
and he was in distress about her. He would not tell me who it was, of course, now, sir. You know as well as I, it was Jessie Diamond. But I asked for advice as to how to set about finding her. He mentioned that Mortlake was leaving for Devonport by the first train the next day. Of old, I should have connected these two facts and sought the thread. Now, as he spoke, all my thoughts were dyed red. He was suffering perceptively from toothache, and in answer to my sympathetic inquiries, told me it had been allowing him very little sleep. Everything combined to invite the trial of one of my favourite theories. I spoke to him in a fatherly way, and when I tendered some vague advice about the girl, I made him promise to secure a night's rest before he faced the arduous tram man's meeting in the morning by taking a sleeping draught. I gave him a quantity of sulfonal in a phial. It is a new drug which produces protracted sleep without disturbing digestion, and which I use myself. He promised faithfully to take the draught, and I also exhorted him earnestly to bolt and bar and lock himself in, so as to stop up every chink or aperture by which the cold air of the winter's night might creep into the room. I remonstrated with him on the careless manner he treated his body, and he laughed in his good-humoured gentle way, and promised to obey me in all things, and he did that Mrs. Drabdump, failing to rouse him, would cry, Murder! I took for certain. She's built that way. And even Sir Charles Brown Harlan remarked, She habitually takes her prepossessions for facts, her inferences for observations. She forecasts the future in grey. Most women of Mrs. Drabdump's class would have behaved as she did. She happened to be a peculiarly favourable specimen for working on by suggestion, but I would have undertaken to produce the same effect on almost any woman. The key to the big bow mystery is feminine psychology. The only uncertain link in the chain was, would Mrs. Drabdump rush across to get me to break open the door? Women always rush for a man. I was well nigh the nearest, and certainly the most authoritative man in the street, and I took it for granted she would. But suppose she hadn't? The Home Secretary could not help asking. Then the murder wouldn't have happened, that's all. In due course Arthur Constant would have awoke, or somebody else breaking open the door would have found him sleeping. No harm done, nobody any the wiser. I could hardly sleep myself that night, the thought of the extraordinary crime I was about to commit, a burning curiosity to know whether Wimp would detect the modus operandi, the prospect of sharing the feelings of murderers with whom I had been in contact all my life, without being in touch with the terrible joys of their inner life, the fear lest I should be too fast asleep to hear Mrs. Drabdump's knock, all these things agitated me and disturbed my rest. I lay tossing on my bed, planning every detail of poor Constance's end. 
The hours dragged slowly and wretchedly on toward the misty dawn. I was racked with suspense. Was I to be disappointed after all? At last the welcome sound came, the rat-tat-tat of murder. The echoes of that knock are yet in my ear. Come over and kill him. I put my night-capped head out of the window and told her to wait for me. I dressed hurriedly, took my razor, and went across to Eleven Glover Street. As I broke open the door of the bedroom in which Arthur Constant lay sleeping, his head resting on my hands, I cried, My God! as if I saw some awful vision. A mist as of blood swam before Mrs. Drabdump's eyes. She cowered back. For an instant, I divined, rather than saw the action, she shut off the dreaded sight with her hands. In that instant, I had made my cut, precisely scientifically, made so deep a cut, and drawn out the weapon so sharply that there was scarce a drop of blood on it. Then there came from the throat a jet of blood, which Mrs. Drabdump, conscious only of the horrid gash, saw but vaguely. I covered up the face quickly with a handkerchief to hide any convulsive distortion, but as the medical evidence, in this detail accurate, testified, death was instantaneous. I pocketed the razor and the empty sulfonal file. With a woman like Mrs. Drabdump to watch me, I could do anything I pleased. I got her to draw my attention to the fact that both the windows were fastened. Some fool, by the way, thought there was a discrepancy in the evidence, because the police found only one window fastened, forgetting that, in my innocence, I took care not to refasten the window I had opened to call for aid. Naturally, I did not call for aid before a considerable time had elapsed. There was Mrs. Drab dumped to quiet, and the excuse of making notes, as an old hand. My object was to gain time. I wanted the body to be fairly cold and stiff before being discovered though there was not much danger here, for, as you saw by the medical evidence, there's no telling the time of death to an hour or two. The frank way in which I said the death was very recent disarmed all suspicion, and even Dr. Robinson was unconsciously worked upon in adjudging the time of death by the knowledge, query here, Mr. Templeton, that it had preceded my advent on the scene. Before leaving Mrs. Drabdump, there is just one point I should like to say a word about. You've listened so patiently, sir, to my lectures on the science of sciences that you will not refuse to hear the last. A good deal of importance has been attached to Mrs. Drabdump's oversleeping herself by half an hour. It happens that this like the innocent fog which has been made responsible for much, is a purely accidental and irrelevant circumstance. In all works on inductive logic, 
it is thoroughly recognised that only some of the circumstances of a phenomenon are of its essence and causally interconnected. There is always a certain proportion of heterogeneous accompaniments which have no intimate relation whatever with the phenomenon. Yet so crude as yet the comprehension of the science of evidence that every feature of the phenomenon under investigation is made equally important and sought to be linked with a chain of evidence. To attempt to explain everything is always the mark of the tyro. The fog and Mrs. Drabdump's oversleeping herself were mere accidents. There are always these irrelevant accompaniments, and the true scientist allows for this element of, so to speak, chemically unrelated detail. Even I never counted on the unfortunate series of accidental phenomena which have led to Mortlake's implication in a network of suspicion. On the other hand, the fact that my servant Jane, who usually goes about ten, left a few minutes earlier on the night of December 3rd so that she didn't know of Constance's visit was a relevant accident. In fact, just as the art of the artist or the editor consists largely in knowing what to leave out, so does the art of the scientific detector of crime consist of knowing what details to ignore. In short, to explain everything is to explain too much, and too much is worse than too little. To return to my experiment, my success succeeded my wildest dreams. None had an inkling of the truth. The insolubility of the Big Bow murder teased the acutest minds in Europe and the civilized world. That a man could have been murdered in a thoroughly inaccessible room savoured of the ages of magic. The redoubtable wimp who had been blazoned as my successor, fell back on the theory of suicide. The mystery would have slept till my death, but I fear for my own ingenuity. I tried to stand outside myself, and to look at the crime with the eyes of another, or of my old self. I found the work of art so perfect as to leave only one sublimely simple solution. The very terms of the problem were so inconceivable that had I not been the murderer, I should have suspected myself, in conjunction, of course, with Mrs. Drabdump. The first persons to enter the room would have seemed to me guilty. I wrote at once in a disguised hand over the signature of one who looks through his own spectacles to the pell-mell press to suggest this. By associating myself thus with Mrs. Drabdump, I made it difficult for people to disassociate the two who entered the room together. To dash a half-truth in the world's eyes is the surest way of blinding it altogether. This pseudonymous letter of mine I contradicted, in my own name, the next day. And in the course of the long letter which I was tempted to write, I adduced fresh evidence against the theory of suicide. I was disgusted with the open verdict, and wanted men to be up and doing, and trying to find me out. I enjoyed the hunt more. 
Unfortunately, Wimp, set on the chase again by my own letter, by dint of persistent blundering, blundered onto a track which, by a devilish tissue of coincidences, I had neither foreseen nor dreamt of, seemed to the world the true. Mortlake was arrested and condemned. Wimp had apparently crowned his reputation. This was too much. I had taken all this trouble merely to put a feather in Wimp's cap, whereas I had expected to shake his reputation by it. It was bad enough that an innocent man should suffer, but that Wimp should achieve a reputation he did not deserve, and overshadow all of his predecessors by dint of a colossal mistake, this seemed to me intolerable. I have moved heaven and earth to get the verdict set aside, and to save the prisoner. I have exposed the weakness of the evidence. I have had the world search for the missing girl. I have petitioned and agitated. In vain. I have failed. Now I play my last card. As the overweening wimp could not be allowed to go down to posterity as the solver of this terrible mystery, I decided that the condemned man might just as well profit by his exposure. That is the reason I make the exposure to-night, before it is too late to save Mortlake. "'So that is the reason?' said the Home Secretary, with a suspicion of mockery in his tones. "'The sole reason.' Even as he spoke, a deeper roar than ever penetrated the study. "'A reprieve! Hooray! Hooray!' The whole street seemed to rock with earthquake, and the names of Grodman and Mortlake to be thrown up in a fiery jet. "'A reprieve! A reprieve!' and then the very windows rattled with cheers for the minister, and even above that rose the shrill voices of the newsboys. "'Reprieve of Mortlake! Mortlake reprieved!' Grodman looked wonderingly across the street. "'How do they know?' he murmured. "'Those evening papers are amazing,' said the minister dryly. "'But I suppose they had everything ready in type for the contingency.' He turned to his secretary. "'Templeton, have you got down every word of Mr. Grodman's confession?' "'Every word, sir.' "'Then bring in the cable you just received as Mr. Grodman entered the house.' Templeton went back into the outer room, and brought back the cablegram that had been lying on the minister's writing-table when Grodman came in. The Home Secretary silently handed it to its visitor. It was from the Chief of Police of Melbourne, announcing that Jesse Diamond had just arrived in that city in a sailing vessel, ignorant of all that had occurred, and had immediately dispatched back to England, having made a statement entirely corroborating the theory of the defence. "'Pending further inquiries into this,' said the Home Secretary, not without appreciation of the grim humour of the situation, as he glanced at Grodman's ashen cheeks. I have reprieved the prisoner. Mr. Templeton was about to dispatch the messenger to the Governor of Newgate as you entered this room. Mr. Wimp's card-castle would have tumbled to pieces without your assistance. Your still undiscoverable crime would have shaken his reputation as you intended. A sudden explosion shook the room, 
and blent with the cheers of the populace. Grodman had shot himself, very scientifically, in the heart. He fell at the Home Secretary's feet, stone dead. Some of the working men who had been standing waiting by the shafts of the hansom helped to bear the stretcher. End of chapter 12 and end of The Big Bow Mystery